Just before we get into episode 5 of the Bottom Dog podcast, just a reminder that this is a sequential 5-part documentary podcast. So if this is your first time listening, I'd highly recommend going back to the start and start from episode 1 and listen in order. Alright, that's done. I'm Cian Brendeville. Here we go. I'm Kian Prendival. And I'm April Scully, and this is The Bottom Dog, the story of the Limerick Soviet 1919. So in the previous episodes, we have discussed at the events of 1919 and the broader period, including the last episode discussing the missed opportunity for socialism in Ireland in this period. In this episode, we'll be getting a little bit more political and looking at the lessons for today, and for those who want to fight capitalism and build a Limerick Soviet 2.0. <laughs> discuss the lessons for today. What are the prospects for a Limerick Soviet 2.0 and how can we make sure that it's victorious this time? Yeah, so straight off though, one thing that appears to be a major difference between the time we were discussing in the previous episodes and today is that back then the unions were a radical force for change. A lot of young people who are now getting involved in campaigns or struggles wouldn't really see unions in that way. Uh, if you look at the repeal movement or the water charges movement, there was some union support, but uh, they were hardly the key drivers of those movements. And uh, even, I think, at, at a workplace level, a lot of young people are working in the private sector or in small companies where there may not even be unions, where they might not be unionised. Yeah, like about three years ago, I'd say I worked in pennies and we definitely had advantages as a result of our workplace being unionised. Like we were paid above minimum wage, which is unusual for those retail service jobs. Um, but... It was a, I guess, distance between us as workers and, and the union in that, like, I never met my shop steward. None of us saw ourselves as influencing the union or influencing what the union fights on and what it demands. It was just that degree of separation. And I think, I mean, it's really important, like, historically to think, OK, well, we wouldn't have a weekend. We wouldn't have sick pay. We wouldn't have an eight hour working day if it wasn't for the trade union movement. But these are... They seem rooted in history. It's difficult today to look at examples of where the trade unions have fought for things and delivered real change for workers. Yeah, that's a point that I, I put to Mary O'Donnell when I was talking to her. She's a, she was a full-time official with SIP2 for a number of years, but she's currently the, um, the chairperson of the Limerick Soviet 100 Festival Committee. And I asked her about that, like, what is the relevance of unions to, to young people today? And the first point she made to me was that actually we still need unions today because if you look at it, the bosses themselves have unions. They're in Ibeck, which is a form of trade union for the bosses. But but here's what she said anyway. Well, the interesting thing about that is that um, employers are all members of trade unions. They're members of unions that operates on their behalf, etc., etc. Whereas they don't want workers to have that independent organisation. And society has been driven to believe that trade unions are no longer relevant. And at the same time, you know, we're, we were all very sympathetic when we read historically about dockers and other workers being picked up on the side of the, the road and saying, you, you, you and you can have a job today. And, you know, we had gotten away from all that. We've become much more sophisticated. We looked after workers' interests. However, um, I now observe that people are getting a text to say when they can come to work or getting a call at a moment's notice to say when they can come to work and who can come to work. 
And um, to me, that is a 21st century version of picking people up in the docks. So I think our, our point is that the, the need for unions is still there. Fundamentally, the same situation as 100 years ago. If workers are unorganised, they have no protection. Um, if you look at the, the, the point that she makes about the, the rise of precarious work, with the decline in trade unions in the last couple of decades, we've had the, the reintroduction of that if and when contracts, we now call it precariousness. And I think that that's a growing trend as well because of the decline in the power of the unions. And you see some of the most precarious workers now unionising in the last couple of years. We've seen Deliveroo workers protests delivery workers going out and strike, unionising hospitality workers in Belfast. And the role of socialists in instigating these or intervening into these workplaces, the role of socialists, I think, is shown here. Just like as we spoke about in previous episodes, I know that there are some socialist party members involved in the Unite Youth Committee and have done really good work helping unionise bourgeois workers in places like that. Yeah, it was the same when the ITGWU began organising as well, because up until that point, the only workers that were unionised were, were craft unions, were tradespeople. Um, but then they began organising the previously unorganised, uh, precarious workers and, and the like. Um, and they did it very well by unionising one place, getting results there, and then being able to go to the, to the neighbouring factory and say, well, we increased wages 20% next door, you should join the union and, and we'll get you an increase as well, you know. Get a sort of a, a race to the top in terms of wages and conditions. One of the key tactics that the ITGWU used um, in industrial action was solidarity strikes. So one workplace would go out and strike and then in order to increase the impact, another workplace would go out and strike as, again, as well, you know. Yeah, and we've seen some of that today. Now it's it's more difficult because there's anti-union laws which try to criminalise a lot of that. Um but when the, the bus workers on strike here in Limerick, one of the days they put a picket on and they asked the train drivers to come out in solidarity with them. And the train drivers did. They respected that picket. Technically, it may have been illegal. But when you're organised and when you're resolute, what are they going to do? They weren't going to sack every bus and train driver in the country. You know, they'd be creating a nightmare. Um, so I think that same solidarity action is possible now. Yeah, and really effective. I mean, if you think about when the Dublin bus workers went out on strike, if the Lewis workers went out on strike, if Aaron Road Aaron workers did, I mean, it would just cause such chaos. Yeah. It would really demonstrate how powerful the transport workers are. Yeah, and I, I think there needs to be more of a willingness in the trade union movement to defy these unjust laws. But beyond that, there needs to be more of, a, of an attempt to try to unionise unorganised workers. And I'd say you have strongholds. You have trade union strongholds still in this country. You have the public hospitals, public buildings, things like that. Um where you might have a strong concentration of unionised staff. But you'd also have, in, in public hospitals, you'd have ununionised staff in the canteens, um, for instance. Could the trade union movement not use its strength in that workplace to insist that all workers that are working there are, are unionised and are on union rates? Mm -hmm. um, or, or do the same in a shopping centre. Have a campaign in one shopping centre to say, well, look, we're going to unionise every shop in this shopping centre. Build that solidarity between those workers and that would then give you the, the power to demand a, a minimum wage within that shopping centre. Does that make any sense? Sorry. Yeah, yeah, that's really good. The point about building solidarity across workforces, like the example that I gave, if the Lewis workers, if the Aaron Road Aaron workers came out, it wouldn't just them be doing a nice, a, a good deed to the Dublin bus workers. It would be the building of solidarity across workplaces strengthens different branches because... It strengthens everyone. Yeah, because we know that, like particularly when the Lewis workers went out and strike, like it was a big campaign to isolate them to kind of deride them and kind of make them cave in because you can and pick them apart you know pick different sectors apart pick different workplaces apart 
So if you have that show of strength, if you have workplaces that are knitted together in that. Yeah, like literally in the case of the public transport, in the space of a year, they, the government tried to take, took on the Lewis workers first, then there was the bus workers, then there was the train workers. So, but they wanted to take them on individually, each, yeah, yeah, one yeah. at a time. Yeah. And then when the bus drivers are out on strike, the trains are running extra carriages. And when the trains are out on strike, there's extra buses. Mm-hmm, Do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? It's one at a time you can isolate you. And in the shopping centre example, like out in the Crescent shopping centre where pennies is unionised. That's where I used to work, but there's lots of shops out there that are not unionised. It is in the interest, I think, of the pennies workers for other shops to be unionised. In that way, building the base of support for workers' rights out there. And it means as well that you can just push up what's the minimum that's acceptable. Because otherwise you'll be undermined. They'll say to you and pennies, well, if you don't like it, there's somebody next door is working for 50 cents less, so mm-hmm. you know I, mean? I can get them in. Whereas if you have a stronger union across a shopping centre um, or across an industry or across the board, it gives you that sort of upwards pressure on wages as well. And I think that's, that's what they did 100 years ago, and I think that's what we need to get back to now. To convince people, to attract people to the union, you need to show them that it's purposeful, that unions can get results, and that it actually, your subs pay to be a member of the union. Yeah, and the advantage of a union isn't just that you can get better wages, but it's also better working conditions. And like, if you look at the the outburst of anger from young people, from young women in particular, about the Me Too movement, and um, which was essentially a movement about sexual harassment largely at the workplace, um, I think that's an, another example of where unions could be at the forefront of fighting in a workplace where they're unionised, fighting for a, a decent sexual harassment policy that any complaints are investigated not by the bosses, but by the workers, by survivors' representatives. And if you could win that in a workplace, I think that could be very attractive. Uh, and that could be a very attractive campaign to go and unionise other workplaces um, where, where that might be an issue where people might be, be energised by the Me Too movement and get some of that energy into the trade unions. And I also think that unions need to be democratic as well, that actually the members are part of informing what the unions fight for. They're not just waiting to hear about what the unions are going to do, but they're actually part of it. Yeah, fundamentally, uh, trade unions are the economic weapon of the working class. They they have to be controlled by the working class themselves. Just on that phrase, working class, because I think it can get some people's backs up or it's misunderstood as a phrase. It can kind of hark back to an era where men in flat caps worked in factories or their dockers or their miners. But what does the working class look like today? Who is a working class person today? Like I was reading in the Irish Times this morning and it was talking about the middle class in Ireland and it talked about the middle class and then it talked about the about lower income families. And it said lower income families were for, like, for example, a four person family to be classified as lower income would be earning less than 38,000 euros a year. A lot of families where there's two people working would often bring in more than 38,000 euros a year, but I would still classify them as working class people like, yeah. like two bus drivers or two nurses or two doctors or whatever. Or they could have a mixed... Yeah. Bus drivers don't just marry bus drivers. Bus drivers and nurses marry nurses. We all, we, all, we all know that the teachers marry the guards, you know? No. Um, yeah, but fundamentally, I think from a socialist point of view, the, what we mean by working class, as you were saying, it, it, it's all those who, who earn an income by working for somebody else, by working for a company, and all those who are financially dependent on them as well. And that's as opposed to what people would now call the 1%, those who simply own things for a living and, and they let other people do the work for them. They sit back and watch the, the profits and the dividend rolled in. Why is there such a focus on the working class? Yeah, it's because that's the force that fundamentally has the power to really fight back. I think the, the Limerick Soviet showed that without the workers, nothing can be run. Um, the conscription strike, which was about a year before the Limerick Soviet, 
Um, workers went out on a 24-hour strike and managed to force the British to back off plans from introducing conscription. Um, workers' strikes, in that sense, were more powerful than the IRA ambushes or the gun battles. Yeah, I think the working class as a class has the power to challenge all oppressions. And like I would have been a feminist before I would have been a socialist. Um, I was involved in campaigning for abortion rights in school and in college. Like a common view, I think, that you were taught about Marxists in school or in college or whatever, was that Marxists were very focused on the working class and viewed other issues, issues such as racism, sexism, homophobia as secondary issues. The working class were oppressed primarily and worse still, sometimes it was portrayed as like, and actually these other issues of oppression are distractions from the key struggle, which mm. is the class struggle. And I don't think that's a very crude and wrong portrayal of what Marxism is. Yeah, and that, that isn't really what Marxism is about. Marxism is, a, is about how do we stop and end all oppressions, all injustices. But it's recognizing that the unique power of the working class as a class is that it can stop capitalism, it can hit it where it hurts uh, by withdrawing its labour, by bringing capitalism to a halt, as they did in the Limerick Soviet. Yeah, and there's a collective interest in doing that. I mean, for example, black women travellers suffer greater oppression than me as a white woman. Those issues are very real and like they should be raised as part of struggles and for to raise people's consciousness on issues of race and gender, etc. But it is against the interest of working class people for racism, sexism to exist. They divide us and they weaken us. Yeah, and put another way, when workers fight for their own self-interest, they have to cut across those divisions. I, got, I was involved in the water charger struggle. We needed to build the strongest possible boycott of those charges possible. And an important way of doing that was to convince everybody not to pay. There was the Polish We Won't Pay campaign, mm -hmm. which played a very important part in convincing that community to, to also join with us and boycott it. And that unity was necessary. It was really inspiring because you could see how enthusiastic local community groups got when they saw that there was a Polish page set up and um, they wrote out the why you shouldn't pay leaflets in Polish, you know, kind of abating people's fears as to no, you should be, you shouldn't pay and you won't be punished for this. And mm -hmm. it was really, really a really good example of that, I think. Yeah. And a famous example of that is in the film Pride, which is a, a true story which highlights the solidarity that was built up between striking miners in Britain in the 80s and the LGBT movement. It tells the story of LGSM, which is this LGBT activist campaign group in London, which started fundraising to support the miners. And it shows the dynamic in that situation where the miners realised that they needed that support, that they saw that actually bigotry would only weaken them. And then they saw the connection between their struggle and the LGBT struggle. And spoilers alert, the, the miners ended up at the end of the film leading the Pride Parade, which is also true as well. And coming back to the Limerick Soviet just for a second and that period and see it in terms of how United Working Class Movement fighting for a workers' republic could have overcome sectarian divisions. Not only could it have, but if workers' struggles were to be successful, they had to. Yeah, and like you had a general strike in Belfast the same year as the Limerick Soviet, but that strike couldn't have succeeded if it was only one half of the workers coming out. They, they needed to unify Catholics and Protestants together in that struggle to have any, any chance of success. We have to build workers' unity, and in this next clip, Conor Costick explains why it's still applicable today. The head-counting strategy of Sinn Féin is a very dangerous one. Because I don't think any lasting peace has been achieved by um, outpopulate, you know, move from one community to another based on head counting. The danger in the situation, and it's, it's quite present at the moment, is if the world enters a recession, which there's talk about, and you get a situation where a swimming pool has to close or a community centre has to close down, in Northern Ireland that always takes a strong sectarian twist. 
is it going to be a Catholic one? Is it going to be a Protestant one? And the anger around these issues can flare up very, very violently. Um, you know, we look at, it's unstable. The world is unstable and the North is not stable. We've, fortunately, there's been a generation growing up with peace, but that can unravel. You've got to play a different kind of game altogether. One that says, let's build a socialist island. Let's build swimming pools for everybody and elderly care for everybody and so on. Resource the health systems. Push back against the conservative legislation on, against you know gay marriage in the North and so on. So Limerick Soviet is, is really exciting because it shows that the narrative that says your choice is an alliance with Catholic Church and Republicanism or staying with the British Empire... It shows an alternative to that choice. There's a third route. There's a working class route. The point about not fighting amongst ourselves as to whose swimming pool is closed, I think, is a good one. Um, and I think it's true for other movements as well. Movements like sexism, the movements against sexism, against racism. These movements are strongly influenced by privilege theory ideas. And there's positive aspects of inclusivity of the most oppressed, raising consciousness of different forms of oppression in that way that I think is good. But there's also a danger that we just end up becoming so insular. There's just this pessimistic focus on who is the most privileged. Um, and whereas we should be trying to turn outwards, seek to unite and link up as many people to the cause as possible. If these movements are led by a, a workers program, a socialist program, that can cut across a lot of the division um, because it's programmatically putting points forward that we can raise as demands that can gain traction amongst all working class people but it also fights to bring demands of these movements, like the movements against sexism, like the movements against racism forward. Yeah, and I, I think it's about emphasising what unites us, not what divides us, um, and trying to come up with a common programme that can unify all of those who are oppressed. But I also think there's that point, like why it's important to link back to the, the point that Conor Costick was talking about with sectarianism, was that then it just becomes we're actually raising our sights for something much bigger. We're not just trying to fight amongst ourselves for a share of the crumbs. We're trying to get the whole pie, you know. Yeah, and I think it's also true for, for climate change and for struggles on the environment, where there's a danger that it's presented as being a clash between the rights of workers and the environment. So in Limerick, you have the struggle against a, a, an incinerator that they want to build. A cement factory wants to start burning tyres. And... There's a big movement uh, to oppose that and to protect the environment. But there's a, a danger that it's, it's seen as if, the, if that movement succeeds, then the workers would lose their jobs. But we need to be demanding a just transition, that that factory should be brought into public ownership and should be the workers should have their jobs defended at trade union rates of pay, but should be reskilled or retooled to produce more environmentally sustainable construction materials to, to be used in the building of public housing that we need. And that's an example of where if the workers' movement took the lead in fighting on climate change and putting forward socialist policies, you could unify these different movements into a united struggle to tackle climate change and to defend workers' rights. So we've talked a lot about socialism 
and socialists. Um, but what is socialism? And I think that's what we're going to go into this next part of the podcast. If you're convinced of the corrupt, dysfunctional nature of capitalism, if you think organizing society along the lines of profit is anti-human, and I think that's becoming more and more of a thing where we're plunging towards this environmental catastrophe, which threatens the very continuous of human existence itself. So it is making a lot of people question capitalism, but it's also important to be there to present what kind of vision, what kind of goal you have for what kind of transformation of society you're fighting for. We're not advocating for a fairer or a nicer form of capitalism. We're advocating for ultimately a totally different system. Yeah, I think a common maxim of socialists would have been that you can't control what you don't own. That's so long as the the economy, the the major industries, energy, banking, transport, health, education, housing and the likes, so long as they run for profit, then society would be run for profit. And instead, what socialists say is that those key levers of the economy should be taken into public ownership so that they should be democratically controlled and harnessed for human need, not for private greed. For me, socialism is about organising society for the development and well-being of humans and the protection of the planet. Um, it's up to us working class people to organise our own affairs like we did in the Limerick Soviet. Yeah, and, and this is kind of my favourite part of this podcast where we get to kind of just talk about what we imagine in a socialist society. But if you look at the wealth that's in the oil and coal industries, and I think it's really well known, um, lots of people will follow the English Football League and see just like the vast quantities of wealth that it's just spent by these oligarchs. And see the fact that your own Liverpool are unfortunately <laughs> not going to win. <laughs> we don't know that yet. <laughs> but all this money that's spent, that's just used at the discretion of so so few people, if this wealth was directed towards energy needs, then there would be massive global investment in renewables and like a systematic closure of all the oil draining, all the coal burning and fracking. Yeah, and I think uh, capitalism claims to be this highly efficient system, but it's actually ludicrous. Um, One trillion dollars a year is spent on advertising. Another trillion dollars a year is spent on armaments. That that is wasted money. That is money that could instead be being used to fund housing, healthcare, decent jobs for all, you know. And if you had democratic control over those things, I, I don't think that anybody would be voting to spend a trillion dollars on arms or people mm. would be voting to spend a trillion dollars on advertising. I, I think yeah. they would vote to de- direct that resources to people's need. So how do we get there then? How do you say to people, hey, this system is only benefiting a very tiny margin society and it's not us, so let's organise and fight back? Because that seems like a mammoth task and it's very unlikely to be a clear avenue to get people active. We spoke a lot throughout this podcast about initiatives around movements, where an issue or an injustice captures people's imagination. The direct action in terms of the strike against militarism, um, the housing action and the abortion rights victory, movements against oppression and, and for a demand inspire activity of the working class. Yeah, I think you sort of answered some of your, your own question there in that what we need to do is find issues that can mobilise people and, and activate people into struggle against injustice and against inequality. But in those struggles, then arguing for the need for a socialist alternative, connecting the dots between the problems people face today. The root cause of those is, is capitalism, is the rule of profit. And, and the answer to that, the antidote to that is socialism. And I, I think part of that as well is organising politically organising to, to challenge the political parties that rule, putting forward a, an independent and a socialist programme um, that can gain a real traction and, and point to the socialist alternative. And you can see this in the US right now, there is a democratic primary race and Bernie Sanders' campaign is inspiring so many people when he talks about a political revolution against the billionaire class by putting forward basic 
um, and straightforward demands to increase people's quality of living in terms of education, minimum wage, healthcare. Like it raises people's sights, it lifts people's aspirations as to, yeah, actually, I don't deserve to live in poverty when I work two jobs. Mm -hmm. And then you can see why the likes of the Democratic Party, like the likes of whom supported Obama and Clinton, can see what a problem Bernie is for them because he is mobilizing people. He's calling and he's not just saying, oh, you sit at home and I'll do it. He's calling people to come out on the streets with him, to mobilize, to fight for demands, to put forward demands. Yeah, it's a real inspiration. The, the huge support that, that Bernie has, has tapped and has mobilised shows the, the, the desire for a left alternative. And it will come into conflict, as you say, with the, with the Democratic Party. And I think ultimately what's needed is, is an independent and left-wing party standing separate to the Democrats and Republicans and posing that sort of a socialist um, alternative. And I think we need something similar here. Um, Irish politics has been dominated by Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael. We need a new left-wing political alternative. Solidarity is trying to build that together with people for profit, trying to, to create that kind of radical left-wing alternative to, to shake up politics and to build a, a voice for working class people. That's what the Labour Party was meant to be before it sold out. And that's what we need again, 100 years on, we need to build that kind of a strong left and socialist alternative. As well as a broad left party that attracts um, workers, young people, people who are interested in left ideas, socialist ideas. I think a Marxist revolutionary party is also very important. Yeah, I think if you look at the Limerick Soviet, you had Sean Dowling, you had others of a similar mindset right across the country. But the, the tragedy was that they weren't organised. and They, they were they, isolated. Yeah, exactly. They could be isolated uh, and because they, they weren't organised enough into their own network. And you had a broad left party, it was the Labour Party, but unfortunately the people at the top of it uh, wanted to sabotage that revolutionary opportunity. Um, and the, the, the revolutionaries weren't strong enough to, to unseat them. And, and that's why I think we need to build a broad left, but we also need to, to as you said, organise those revolutionaries to bring together those who uh, are socialist, who are interested in Marxist ideas, to discuss and debate, study the history, study the theory and, and prepare. And I think it's also about performing an analysis on today. You know, we have Marxist ideas, Marxist theories that have been developed by Marxists over decades. Like when we look at the events today, the unprecedented changes in capitalism, how do we apply those lessons today? Mm -hmm. and, the, and the only way we'll answer those questions is by, in ourselves, being active in those movements, being active in the areas that we're in. If you're in a workplace, join a union. If you're in a college, get active in, in building movements there. Being active in those campaigns and building groups around us, but also connecting with others of like mind and coming together in common revolutionary organizations, discussing and learning and studying these histories mm -hmm. and, and debating out this, the best strategies and tactics for the movements to come. And if we do that, I think we can be in position when there is Limerick Soviet 2.0, when there are these movements that we see developing and when we build a strong left party, that it isn't the conservative and the conciliators that end up ruling it but that there's a, a socialist wing to it that can win and can ensure that the next revolutionary events and revolutionary opportunities in Ireland aren't missed, that instead we, we seize them and link up with other socialists around the world and, and succeed in building a socialist world. We march to the bridge where the soldiers stand in line in defence of a realm that is neither yours nor mine and bow to a king just to earn our daily crust but we'll bend the knee no more Enough's a bloody enough From the treaty stone To kingdom come A red sky dawns For everyone in every home And there 
That's the end of this season of the Bottom Dog Podcast, telling the story of the Limerick Soviet, 1919. Thanks for listening, and please do spread the word about this podcast documentary to your friends and family. Special thanks to my co-host April Scully, Marty Walsh who edited the episodes together, and Danny Scott who provided huge help and assistance along the way. And of course, thanks to all the guests I interviewed in the making of this podcast. If you would be interested in finding out more about the history of the Limerick Soviet, I would urge you to check out the new books just out from Dominic Hock and Liam Cahill, who were interviewed for this podcast, and the links to their books are in the show notes. This series is now done, and we are considering what to do next. If you have ideas for other topics we should cover, other directions we could go in, or ideas for collaboration, please contact me on Twitter at keyandplk, or email info at limericksoviet.ie. Thanks again, and see you on the barricades. Let no man tell you what you're worth, let no man bind your hands. Let no man tell you when to work, let no man take your land. We stand before the factory gate, the workers set apart. What man is wrought together, God not king can tear apart. Let God not pork no royal tell you when to spend your coin. We came to Caesar what was Caesar's, but Caesar's dead and gone. But in his place a thousand more demand your cost of blood For he no more than one to blood This time he gets a blood from the treaty stone The kingdom come, red sky dawns For everyone in every home And every heart will strike and march together Tell the tyrants to depart